Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, is the petitionary prayer of Paul and Timothy. You heard their thanksgivings in verse 3 and the following verses, the occasion of their thanksgiving, the grounds of their thanksgiving, and that important digression regarding the arrival of the gospel in Colossae. And then in these verses, we turn to an amplification of their prayers. And in verse 9, we had the prayers themselves described. First of all, in those words, praying and asking, both of which pointed to petitionary prayer specifically, not just prayer in the general sense, but to petitionary prayer making petition of God, asking things of God. We also had in verse 9 there the occasion of their prayer, from which day we heard it. That is, from the very day that Epaphras had provided such a manifest evidence of the Colossians' love to all the saints. They had prayed from that very day that they had heard such proofs of their love to all the saints. And then we had the regular nature of their prayer described. We cease not praying and asking, not as if they did nothing but pray constantly, but rather it was frequent and, most importantly, regular prayer for the Colossians. And finally, we had the grounds of their petitionary prayer. On account of this, we also pray, which was a reference back to verse 5, on account of the hope laid up for you in the heavens, we not only give thanks, but we also pray for you and ask things of God. And as we continue on in verse 9 today, we come to the actual content of the prayers made by Paul and Timothy. What were they praying what were these petitions that they were praying of God? And as we uh, consider the form of verses 9 through 12 and the grammatical arrangement of the various clauses, we find that there is one main petition, one principal thing for which Paul and Timothy were praying with regard to the Colossians. And that is, they were praying that you, Colossians, might walk worthy of the Lord. I'm sorry, no. The main petition, that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That is the main petition. That you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Then the next clause which I mistakenly began to read a moment ago, the next clause reveals the purpose of the filling for which they prayed. What To what end is it that these Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of the divine will? What, what purpose did they have in mind in this prayer? And that was, in order to walk worthy of the Lord, in all pleasing. We are praying for you to be filled with the knowledge of the divine will so that you will walk worthy of the Lord in all pleasing. Then follow 
four descriptive elements that explain what a worthy walk is. So I want you to be filled with the divine knowledge of the divine will so that you'll walk worthy of the Lord. And a, and a worthy walk is described in these four things. First of all, bearing fruit in every good work. It's the first thing. Bearing fruit in every good work is the first part of a worthy walk. Secondly, growing in the knowledge of God. Growing in the knowledge of God. Thirdly, being strengthened in all power according to the power of His glory unto all endurance and patience with grace. That's a, that's a long one, but it's being strengthened, being strengthened in all power according to the power of His glory unto endurance and patience with grace. And then fourthly, the fourth element describing a worthy walk, which is the purpose of the Apostles' Prayer that they might be filled with the knowledge of God, the fourth element is giving thanks to the Father who has made us sufficient for the portion of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And then from there, uh, the focus begins to shift in verse 13, to the work of the Father, which is a continued statement of what they're giving thanks for. And then into verses 14 through 20, which is this wonderful revelation of the person of the Son and His eternal glory. As Paul leads in through this prayer and then turns away from prayer to a description of the Son, and to a, and which is really a refutation of the... Uh, of the heretical views being broached in Colossae that were uh, taking away from the glory of Christ and assigning it, making him like a almost just a chief angel or something to that effect. Now, of course, we won't look at all of that today, but I wanted to give you the layout so you'll understand what's going on as we continue through the verses. Today we're going to look at that principal petition that Paul and Timothy are making, which is in these words, that you, Colossians, might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, the main concern of this prayer... <clears throat> is that the Colossians would know the will of God. That's the main concern, that the Colossians would know the will of God. But what does this mean, the will of God? What does this have respect to? Is Paul praying that they might have uh, uh, or hear or feel a special inner prompting or voice that directs them in their daily life. Is, is, that, is that what the idea that he's after? Is he praying that they might have a special spiritual connection with God that leads their lives every moment? Uh, this question, I think, can be answered by looking forward again to the purpose, to the description of the purpose of this part of the prayer. The purpose is that they might walk worthy of God in good works, and in the knowledge of God. 
Now, clearly, this is not a, a prayer that the Colossians might have insight into God's secret and sovereign decrees <clears throat> or some mystical personal direction, not at all. Good works, as the confession says, good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal, or upon any pretense of good intention. Now, that will be an important statement as we continue in the letter, because we will see that that is exactly what the Colossian heretics were doing. They had devised all sorts of so-called good works, asceticisms and, and Jewish uh, uh, ceremonies and uh, worshipping of angels and what Paul simply uh, calls will worship. Will worship. Paul didn't want them to walk in those things. That's not a worthy walk. A worthy walk is a walk that's made up of good works, which are good, and good works are found only in the Word of God. They have to be revealed by God before we know that they're good works. And where do we find the knowledge of God? Well, only where God reveals it, and that is in his word by the apostles and prophets. So the will of God referred to here, I believe, is God's revealed will, sometimes called his moral will, sometimes called his will of precept. It is that which God has revealed about what we ought to believe and how we ought to live. Now, of course, in apostolic days, when the canon was open and scripture was still being produced, and you had men who were directly inspired of God, of Christ, teaching, you found God revealed himself not only in the existing Old Testament scriptures, but in the writings that were then being written, and in the preaching and teaching, the inspired preaching and teaching of those men, and in the revelatory teachings of the prophets. But in our day... Uh, I think Calvin, in his exposition of this passage, gives an excellent explanation of where this will of God is to be known. He writes, But what knowledge does he desire in their behalf? The knowledge of the divine will. By which expression he sets aside all inventions of man and all speculations that are at variance with the word of God. For his will is not to be sought anywhere else than in his word. So Paul seeks by prayer that the Colossians might know God's revealed will, that which is given by him to us for our belief and practice. And uh, that's something I'll perhaps expand on at some point, and perhaps prove more in depth from uh, the other scriptures, but we'll leave it at that for now, because that's not the main point. Uh, we uh, inquired as to the will he prayed for them to know. But what about the knowledge? He says he prays for the knowledge of his will, that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now this, once again, this word knowledge is not the word gnosis. It is the word epignosis. Epinosis. And you will remember that from verse 6 that there is an important distinction. 
Remember verse 6 there, since the day you heard it, the gospel, and knew, epigenoso, the grace of God in truth. Uh, this knowledge, epignosis, epignosis knowledge, is not rote knowledge, it is not externalism, it is thorough and comprehensive and intimate and inward knowledge. And this is the knowledge of God's will which Paul seeks for them by prayer. You see, this is very important. Paul has already told them that they had this kind of intimate, thorough, uh, 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 inward knowledge about the gospel. But he wants them to have this type of intimate, thorough, inward knowledge about all of the divine will as revealed by God. He wants them to have a thorough knowledge of God's will, a comprehensive knowledge of divine truth in doctrine and divine commandment. But not just a comprehensive knowledge, because we could have that and be nowhere. He wants it to be an intimate and inward knowledge. And the importance of this cannot be overemphasized, because it is, it is only by this personal, intimate, inward knowledge that we have a sure foundation provided against heretical influence and worldly lusts. Because anything less than that is formalism and externalism. And that ultimately will fail either by apostasy from the truth when under pressure or by moral collapse. You see, if you only have a form, if you only have a creed, if you only have a, 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 a ten words to recite, that you, you're sure you can know all about them, sure you can know what they mean, but until you have that inward embrace and that personal and intimate holding of that truth, then when the pressure is on or when the heretic comes in, people leave it. Or, they, or their power of their own lusts overcomes them and they have moral collapse. And this idea is, in fact, only intensified by the other word used in this uh, passage, which is that he doesn't pray that they might have this epignosis of the divine will, this intimate and, and, and comprehensive knowledge. <clears throat> he prays they might be filled with it, that they might be filled with an intimate and exhaustive knowledge of the divine will. Now, to be filled with something is not to have a little bit, is it? You don't go to the sink and get half a glass of water and say, ah, my glass is filled up. No, you don't do that. That would be silly. Nor is it to have it in measured quantities. Each of us has a quarter teaspoon and we're filled. No. It's to have, it's not to have a portion or a little of something. It's to have all that you can have. That's, that's, that's the idea behind this word. If you have a certain capacity, so you have a, a, a container that holds a certain amount, then it's when it's completely filled up with, what, with something, to capacity. Can't hold anything more than what it's holding. That's to have the fullness, the maximum capacity, the entire contents, as much as an object is fitted to hold, so much. So in quality, the knowledge that Paul prays that they would have of the divine will 
is intimate and exhaustive. And in quantity, it is superabundant and filling. There are a couple of other words that get tacked on here. His prayer is that they might be filled with the intimate and exhaustive knowledge of the divine will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now these just aren't meaningless repetition. They have a significance here. There's some debate as to their exact relationship because of the preposition. Some take them as a description of of the knowledge of the divine will. Some take them as the way of obtaining that knowledge. Probably there's some truth to both of those. I think they refer to something of the mode or manner in which the knowledge of the divine will is held, so that they are both prerequisite to the knowledge of the divine will and coordinate with it. But I'll come back to that. The words themselves... Wisdom is the Greek Sophia, which, incidentally, uh, if you see some of these uh, neo-pagans that have infiltrated the, uh, uh, or perhaps rightly are members of the modern liberal churches, and they have their little seminars and get together and they start worshipping what they call Sophia, and they say it's a divine goddess, that's the Greek word for wisdom. Well, God is not a goddess. And, but God is the true Sophia, uh, Christ, the wisdom of God. And there's absolutely no significance to the fact that it is a feminine gender word. Uh, the word wisdom appears in the Greek in two senses. First of all, uh, the wisdom which comes from men apart from God. There is, there, there is a thing that is called wisdom but it is apart from God, it comes from men, but it is called fleshly wisdom, the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of men. Now that's not true wisdom. Uh, The only true wisdom, according to the scriptures, is God's wisdom, the wisdom of God, the other sense of scripture. And in scripture, true wisdom refers either to men or to God. When it refers to God, it not only means his perfect knowledge of all things. When wisdom refers to God, it points specifically and especially to the perfection of his ordering of all the works of creation and providence and redemption. To confound the world and to secure the greatest demonstration of his own glory. That is the wisdom of God. When referred to men, it mostly refers to the knowledge of practical righteousness, as is exemplified by the teachings of Solomon, or the Sermon on the Mount, or the book of James. However, there is a secondary meaning uh, when referred to men with regard to wisdom. It refers not only to practical understanding and application of truth. There's another, another thing that's somewhat significant. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 13, and really we might think of this even as a third meaning, somewhere not just practical applied as referring to men or God's ordering of redemption as referred to God, but kind of a a combination where the two meet. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, 
which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knows no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things we also speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teach, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And then also Ephesians, uh, comparing with Ephesians, Chapter 1, verses 17 through 23, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This usage refers to what we might consider to be the the high doctrines of the gospel, not the first things of religion, or the first principles, but the fuller and deeper truths of the gospel, especially as those oriented around the work of God in Christ and the person and glory of Christ. And this book is especially about that wisdom and its antithesis to the claimed fuller depths held forth by the Colossian heretics, and I'm strongly tempted to take that meaning here. But uh, looking at the context, uh, we have to say that the context is that this wisdom is something that enables them with this knowledge of the divine will to walk worthy of the Lord by bearing fruit in good works and growing in the knowledge of God. And so the emphasis has to lie probably on the first meaning, the idea described in James Chapter 3, the first idea of wisdom, that of practical application of righteous truth. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly and sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. What is spiritual understanding? He says, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Uh, understanding itself might be described as the comprehension of something, uh, uh, in-depth familiarity, perceiving that which, in fact, others do not perceive. Uh, Luke chapter 2, 
Verse 47, Christ as a boy among the rabbis, and all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Because he was sitting in the midst of the rabbis, both hearing them and asking them questions, and they were astonished that this boy, a young boy of 12 years old, had such understanding, such perception, such insight into the scriptures. Or, for example, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, speaking of Paul's understanding of something given by God, an understanding nonetheless. He says, how that by revelation, he says, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me toward you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. My, and that word knowledge is my understanding, my sunesis in the mystery of of Christ. So the mystery of Christ, see when something's a mystery that means people can't perceive it, people can't grasp it, people don't understand it. It's hidden. But Paul had by revelation understanding of the mystery of Christ. So it's a comprehension, a perception of something. And and uh, spiritual understanding, the word pneumatikos means of or belonging to the Holy Spirit. In this case, it refers to that understanding of which the Spirit of God is the author. Back again there in 1 Corinthians 2, the passage we were reading. Now, he's talking about how there's the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And, 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 and the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of man, is, is understood by the Spirit of man, because the Spirit of man knows what's in him. And the wisdom of God is understood by the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God is in God and knows God. And if we receive the Spirit which is of God, then we too can know those things. He says, he says, we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Neither can he know him, because they're spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Or really, he is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is discerned of no man. So, this understanding is that understanding of which the Spirit is the author. And no wonder he calls it by that name, because notice that this is not an admonition for them to get spiritual understanding. This is a prayer for the Holy Spirit to confer that understanding in them. And finally, in keeping with the emphasis on this verse on the exhaustive, the full, the deep, he says not just any wisdom and spiritual understanding, but all wisdom and spiritual understanding. All that there is to be had, he prays for them to receive. So we can summarize a little bit. Paul prays for them to have an exhaustive knowledge of the divine will. In fact, to be overflowing, to be filled up to capacity with this exhaustive and inward personal knowledge of the divine will. And he wishes them to have it in conjunction with and in the manner of a spirit-imparted comprehension and perception 
of the meaning of divine truth and its significance, and a thorough acquaintance with the implications and applications of that truth in the daily life, the wisdom, and perhaps even by that word wisdom already shadowing forth the mystery of the gospel, and wanting them to have a profound understanding of the divine will, particularly holding it in conjunction with an understanding of the mystery of the gospel and the, and the person and work of Christ, which we'll see will be so important in the verses that follow. Now I want to make, uh, do two things. I want to make two observations about this as it relates to the larger context, and then I want to talk about a few applications. Several commentators, and I think not unjustly, have pointed out that Paul's prayer in a roundabout way is a reminder of the fact that the Colossians are still in need of instruction and, and a preparation for that uh, which follows. By praying that they might be filled, that they might obtain exhaustive knowledge, it implies that they have not yet done so. And if they haven't yet received all the knowledge there is to receive, if they haven't yet been filled with the exhaustive knowledge, if they haven't yet achieved or, or, or been given all the spiritual understanding and wisdom, then there's room for instruction. There's room for instruction in the truth because instruction in the truth is the chief means to that end. And so, by, so this prayer in a roundabout way almost prepares the ground again for Paul to teach them. Secondly, it is probable that Paul's choice of language here, these words, is very intentional and meant to reflect on the situation in Colossae. The false teachers in Colossae were essentially holding forth a doctrine of a kind of higher life. The gospel was sufficient for novices, for initiates in Christianity, for the first level. But after that, you wanted to get to a higher level. You wanted to get to fullness, to the pleroma. You wanted to get to a possession of the gnosis. You wanted to get to an achievement of enlightenment and secret knowledge, you see. And this was obtained through angelic worship, through asceticism, through Jewish observances, through things like that. Now what is interesting is that Paul here admits that there is a kind of fullness to be sought, doesn't he? There is not only a gnosis, but an epignosis. There is Sophia and Sunesis, wisdom and understanding. There is even a mystery, a secret knowledge, if you will. It's been revealed, but it's a mystery. But of course, the big difference is going to be the nature of the mystery, of the fullness, of the wisdom, of the understanding. <clears throat> the means by which that fullness and wisdom and mystery and understanding are to be achieved and sought and found, and the purpose to which that leads. So there's really a radical difference between the ideas of the heretics and the ideas of Paul and, and the, the truth. But he co-ops their terminology almost and introduces it on his side at the outset because in a sense it, it, it 
shoots down one of the possible objections that could immediately be raised, which is that Paul himself has no concept of advancement in the truth and merely dwells with the rudiments. We know that isn't true. Paul elsewhere speaks of that which is fit, that the milk which is fit for babes and the meat which is fit for strong men. And he's talking about doctrine. Some things he couldn't tell them. He says to the Colossians, uh, to the Corinthians, I couldn't speak unto you as, as spiritual because you're yet carnal. And he talks about those who ought to be ready to receive the strong meat, but he's still having to feed them on milk, milk, milk. So <clears throat> Paul shoots down that idea that he merely dwells with the rudiments, but it will be equally important as we continue that as he will delineate the true fullness, the true wisdom, the true understanding, the true means to it, which is no different from the way they entered in to the beginning. It's by the gospel and gospel truth. And the, and the true purpose of it, which is that they might walk worthy of the Lord and obey God and have a knowledge of him. And it all revolves around the divine will. <clears throat> now I want to make a, a few applications here. First of all, we should notice the centrality of God's revelation, of God's will as revealed by him in the scriptures. It, of all things that Paul could pray for them, of all the things that he could have prayed, he could have prayed, his chief petition could have been, I pray that God will sanctify you. He, he could have prayed, uh, I, I pray that you will obey God. More and more is his chief petition. He could have prayed, uh, I, I, he could have prayed, I pray that you'll grow as a church. He says, the principal petition is that you would be filled to capacity with an exhaustive and intimate knowledge of the divine will. Because that is... To the, to the person who is godly, that, who is a Christian, that is the key to right living, to walking worthy of the Lord. Because we can't do right until we know right, can we? And the more we know about the will of God and true righteousness and God's commandments and the truth revealed by Him, the more we can believe all that we ought to believe, the more that we can live in the way that we ought to live. Secondly, consider what kind of advancement in this will is possible and desirable. Epigenosis, exhaustive knowledge. Sophia, the wisdom of practical application. Sunesis, understanding, perception of it in all its meanings. Pleroma, fullness. Strong words. Strong words. Those, we have a lot of people today who believe they have attained. Believe they've got it. Believe they don't need to go on anymore. They, they're, they, they don't have any room to learn anything else. They, they're it. They They know it all. Those people are proud knowing nothing as they ought to know. There are those who 
seek no furtherance, who show no interest in advancement in the divine will. They think if they get a little bit of it, they don't, they don't pretend to know all of it, but they think if they get a little bit of it, that's enough for them. They don't want to be troubled with going on in doctrine. They don't want to be troubled with moving on past the, the rudiments, the rudimentary elements of the commandments or of the, of the revelation of God, the first principles, Paul calls them, of faith in God, repentance from dead works, eternal punishment, baptism, laying on of hands. They, 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 they don't want to move on from those things. They're, they're, they'll accept just a little bit of truth. That's enough for them. And they'll accept just a little bit of commandment, of knowledge of God's will. That's enough for them. That's all wrong. All wrong. People who act that way, who are disinterested, who can't be troubled, who have no desire to go on in more and more truth of the gospel, of the new covenant, more and more knowledge of God's divine will for us, those people have no interest in walking worthy of the Lord. And they make a mockery, a mockery of truth and of the true religion. <clears throat> They're full of nothing but themselves. And that's why they don't want to go on. So two opposite errors. Those who think they've got it all, who don't have any room for anyone to correct them, who don't have any room for any more knowledge. They, they know it all. That's all wrong. They know nothing as they ought to know. Proud. And those, on the other hand, who seek no furtherance because they have no interest. Just a little is enough for them. A little religion, a little commandment, a little truth, a little salvation from sin. Well, perhaps they'll also, they'll also have a little salvation from guilt. And they can take a lot of eternal punishment. Consider, thirdly, the source of this knowledge. This knowledge, this comprehensive knowledge of the divine will, this fullness, is pneumatikos. It's of the Spirit. It's of the Spirit. It's not something we uh, cook up. It's not something that comes out of us. It's knowledge that comes by the enlightening of the Spirit. Not, not, as, if, not as if we are sitting around, you know, and... Having some sort of uh, magical uh, uh, communion, and suddenly enlightenment begins to pour into our minds, and, and and apart from the scriptures, we suddenly know all these truths about God. Not at all, but it's God enabling us to understand the scripture, and that comes from the Spirit of God. It's something with which we are filled. That's passive. To be filled with you don't you don't fill yourself. To be filled. Is, uh, is something we receive. And so, if it's, if it's something that's of the Spirit, and it's something with which we're filled, then it means that we, in fact, ought to seek it by prayer and by instruction. Not, we will see, by mystical asceticism and Jewish ceremonialism and the rudiments of the world and touch not, taste not, handle not. The Word of God. Instruction in the Word of God and prayer. And so then, we're left, fourthly, with the question, uh, where do we stand 
Are we of those who are proud knowing nothing because we think we've got it all? Are we of those who will just have a little bit is sufficient for us? We want to go off and we don't want to be troubled with a lot of commandments of God or or knowing a lot about what God requires of us because that interferes with our lusts and our personal choices for ourselves in our lives and we've got to obey then. We'd prefer to know just a little bit, just enough to keep us sort of clean. We don't want to be troubled with the, with the deep knowledge of the Word of God and the profound knowledge of the Gospel and the Covenant and, 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 and the person of Christ, because that's hard. In any way, it's all, we're not interested in it. And may I add that there's an equal mockery there that comes from those who have no interest in the doctrines of the Gospel and rather will stick with the law, as if the law could be separated from the gospel, as if the law had any significance other than condemnation outside of the gospel. You know those. Oh, I just want to know how to live. Don't trouble me with, with all this sort of high talk about, about, the, about the Trinity, about the, Christ's pre-existent glory, about the Incarnation, about the resurrection of Christ, about the mystical relationship between Christ and His church, about the new covenant in His blood. Well, just toss out, you know, 90% of your New Testament then. Because Paul says we don't just walk worthy of the God, walk worthy of God when we're fruitful in every good work, but when we grow in the knowledge of God. I'm getting ahead. I'll probably say this again in a few weeks. Are we interested and seeking by prayer and instruction both for ourselves and for others, our brethren, the fullness of in the intimate and exhaustive knowledge of the divine will, in all wisdom of practical application and understanding and perception authored by the Spirit. That's the question I leave you with, I guess, for these several weeks now. And when we return, we will consider the purpose of that knowledge, the walking worthy of the Lord, with its description.